Inspiration Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. everybody, Shabbat Shalom. So here we are again, back for another Shabbat and hopefully back for a little bit more insight into the relationship between Israel and the principalities and powers that are out there. We, we can't look to those principalities and powers as a source of security. That's why we say don't lean on the world systems for security for healing, for security, for economic security, for social security. (laughs) Don't look to those world systems. These things are allotted to all the peoples under heaven. You can live in those nations and you can live with those systems, but you shouldn't be drawn away to worship and serve them. You have to remember where your citizenship is. Those things are allotted to the nations. But remember, you're under his personal supervision. And he has a place prepared for you, which he personally supervises. Why would you look to those systems of the world instead of to him for your security, for your safety, for your growth, for your fulfillment, for your sense of purpose? So the sun, the moon, and the stars represent these rulers but they're not to be worshipped. They're only created. They look after their interests and their assigned territory. So as you see these battles going on below, understand how great the battles are in the heavenlies as they're working these things out. Just allow Messiah to start shaking these things before he actually appears. He's shaking up these assigned territories because they're not going to be needed. I don't know if they there would still be some. You know, there's really only the 12 constellations that represent the tribes. There might be more than that. I don't know that it's worthwhile, at least for me, to look any more into it than that, other than to prepare. We have to remember where our citizenship is. We can't take gods that we did not know. And when we say no in Hebrew, like da'at, it's experiential love, it's sacrificial love, it's relational love. And so our experience with these principalities and powers, it's not that. We don't have that relationship to them. They're never to be worshipped. Our sacrifices are for the sake of the Lord. He is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. And if we turn to these other entities, if we see their systems as the source and the solution to all problems, then that's going to be a problem. Because see, what we should be proclaiming is the good news among the nations. Why are we out here among the nations? Just to to hide and wait until King Messiah comes or we see Michael the Prince arise? No, we're out here among the nations to proclaim the good news and to let people know that, you know what, there's lots of children of Abraham and there's room for lots more. But these heavenly bodies, these these planets, constellations, stars, etc., they represent angelic majesties and even the 12 tribes of Israel. There's lots of, of references to them in the book of Revelation. For an example, look at Revelation 6.12, and we'll read through 17. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun 
became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man, free man hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. All right. There's so many symbols right here. Again, if if you're keeping a, a journal or a, a book, a notebook full of, of symbols or prophetic symbols, you've just spotted a bunch of things right here in the context. The the sun, the moon, the stars. Remember, they, they do represent principalities and powers. And so what happens when the sun becomes black as sackcloth, the moon becomes like blood, that's a hint that their light is going to be diminished. And remember, these heavenly body objects are representing angelic majesties. And so do these angelic majesties, do they have light? Do they have a certain glory and honor? They do. Not to say that that something very wicked and ugly can come as an angel of light, but that tells you in itself that angels do have light. So it's going to these, and we'll talk more about that next week as we talk about sorcery and not being deceived by um, somebody posing as Messiah. Angels do have light as a sign of their authority taken from the throne. But see, if a deceiver comes, he can take on that light in order to deceive you into believing that he has heavenly authority when he is a deceiver. But see, the the diminished light of the sun and the moon reflects the diminished light that will be needed by these angelic majesties, again, because King Messiah is coming. He is, remember, the lamp in the holy city is the lamb. There is a light that will come into the earth. So the light of the sun and the moon, in this case, in this example, it, it there might be different examples in other places, but at least in this context, it's saying that these powers and principalities, their light or their authority will be diminished because King Messiah is coming. The same thing with the stars. The stars can represent these angelic majesties, but it can also represent at the very same time, the children of Abraham. Remember that Abraham, look at the stars, count them if you're able, so shall the number of thy seed be. Well, that tells you that they're going to be children of Abraham again as as they come through the refining fire of Egypt, as they come through the refining fire of the, the wilderness of the nations, they're going to get ironed out. And so there's like picture on top of picture right there. But then to show you, you know, very consistently with the sun, the moon, and the stars being, their light being diminished or even in the case of these stars, not no longer even needed, just done away with, being thrown down to earth. And this is very similar to what happens to the serpent. Remember the dragon? He also is going to be thrown down to the earth. There is some realm of authority that apparently he has that he's going to lose, and he's going to think, last lap, I got to get down to the earth and, and do what I'm going to do down there. He knows his time is short. Every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Remember, mountains represent nations. Well, what do these angelic majesties rule over? nations. And then what happens? What we're seeing, at least in a preliminary sense, the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains of the nations. And they said to the nations, to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. In other words, they're trying to crawl back into the systems of those nations. And they're trying to hide themselves 
in those nations. They might try to hide themselves, you know, with military power or economic power or political power because they sense the wrath is coming and they know they're not going to be able to stand. But again, these rocks of these, these strong hiding places in the nations, there's no place to hide. And so they will perceive, they will sense as these princes and principalities begin to lose their power that they have lost power as well. Nothing they can do. Kind of like pulling the plug on a robot, which I guess robots don't have plugs anymore. I'm not sure what we would (laughs) compare that to, but it's like you pull the power plug on them and it's not going to work. You cut off their Wi-Fi and there's no, (laughs) they're not going to be able to do anything. And they have realized this when the sun, the moon, and the stars are darkened, that those principalities, they're not going to be able to function and protect them anymore from the wrath of the Lamb. And then Yeshua talks about it in Mark 13, 24. He says, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And so Yeshua is actually giving us a little more detail here than John did. He's telling us very precisely, it's the powers in the heavens that are being shaken out of the way. Then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory, right? So even though the angelic majesties have power and glory, nothing like this, where where they will be darkening and falling, Messiah and Israel will be uh, arising and shining. And then he will send forth the angels, okay, angels with a message and a mission, and will gather together his elect from the four winds. Remember the angels, messengers, the personal servants, of Adonai. He'll gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. And again, we know that the fig tree is also a symbol of Israel. There's an iron furnace that we're in. But as we see these these frightening things in the heavens. And we see the frightening things on earth that reflect the frightening things in the heavens. There's no need for us to be frightened. Just understand you're in an iron furnace. You're getting ironed out. The plagues and so forth that are going on, the chaos, the craziness of this present world. The great thing is he's gathering us. It's like his angels are just poised like now, now, now. I mean, like Yeshua, now, now. Now, well, when it's go, when it's literally become go time, when these powers and principalities have been shaken out of the way, then what do we see? The son of man coming in the clouds. We've heard his footsteps, bang, 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 bang. And then all of a sudden, now he appears with great power and glory that far surpasses any angelic majesties. And you know what the great thing is? It's this right here. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Okay, there again, we've got this kind of, I would say, double entendre. Who created these stars? Who created these angelic majesties? He did. They're not to be worshipped. He's the one who led forth their host by number. He's the one who named them. Gabriel, Michael, Raphael, whatever the name might be, Pele. But he also created the children of Abraham, who were stars. And what did he do? He led forth their host by number. Remember? Genesis, he created them. Exodus, Shemot, 
That means names, and we get the numbers associated with their names. He led forth their host by number. He tells even the numbers that came out in the Exodus. He calls them all by name, Vayikra, and called. He calls them. He gives them a purpose as a a nation of priests. And so he gives them the instructions for holiness because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. And then we get uh, Bamidbar in the wilderness. He takes us in the wilderness and he numbers us again. And he calls us all by name. He arranges the tribes. And then Deuteronomy, Devarim, these are the words, right? Not one of us is going to be missing. If we are truly the sheep of Jacob, when he prevailed against the angel that night, if we are truly the sheep of Messiah Yeshua who know his voice and we will not follow another, we won't blend in with Esau's flock and say, well, Messiah, (laughs) he'll come get me eventually. Stick with him. Stay in the palm of his hand because in the palm of his hand, not one of them is missing. Not one. So there's stars and stars and stars to know about. It's a lot of material, but I'm trying my best to, to cover, as much, cover as much ground as I possibly can before uh, Sukkot. And I want to make sure that we're kind of, we're at a good stopping place because I know you'll be in Sukkot camps or in your, your backyard in a sukkah. And one thing to remember too, and it, Satan can come as an angel of light. How can I not be deceived? I don't want to be deceived because you know, like it was said that even the elect could be deceived. We don't want to be the elect and be deceived. So yes, not one of them is missing, but what if you didn't get ironed out <laughs> in the furnace? He, he gave you two furnaces to get ironed in. So what happens if we begin to see all kinds of signs and fire coming out of the sky and these lying wonders? And that's the thing. They're going to look a whole lot, again, like what we would expect from King Messiah to do. It's going to look a whole lot like an angel with a holy mission might do. So how are we going to be able to tell the difference? So that's what we're going to work on next is identifying sorcery, entities, people who are crossing boundaries and realms that they shouldn't be crossing. You know, number one, we shouldn't be crossing them. Number two, how are we going to identify if somebody is crossing into our realm in an unauthorized way with an unauthorized invitation? Because we want to, we don't want to miss the voice of Yeshua. If we're His sheep, we need to know the fundamentals, and that's the thing we were talking about at Oneg today. Is when you're tired, when you're worn out, when you're busy, when there's a lot going on, but especially when you're super tired. That's when the fundamentals have to take over. And if you don't know the fundamentals when you're tired, then I think that's what will make you very vulnerable to these sorceries that are referred to in Revelation and somebody who's going to have the appearance that he's been resurrected when actually it's just a lying wonder. So we'll, we'll, we'll try to pick up some tools. I don't think anybody on this live stream right now is going to be you know among that number. I think he, we're among those numbers that he has called forth by name, but we can instruct others who might be riding that fence, who might be lukewarm, who might be in that intermediate place, who, you know, they might hear the the shofar on the Feast of Trumpets and still not be sure. So if, if we can leave them some instructions and some guidance so that they can make that 11-day journey from the Feast of Trumpets until after the closing of the gates on Yom Kippur. 
then I think we can we can extend that love and say, hey, I want you in Sukkot. I want you to abide in the presence of Adonai forever. I want you to be gathered. I want you to be part of that kingdom. I want you to go in the first resurrection. I want your name to be in the book. And I want you to be firm. I want you to be built on a firm foundation. That's the I think that's just love, you know? How are you going to love your your family, your friends, and so forth. Love them with the word. That's the only thing that you can give them that will endure. If you give them money, it'll burn up with the sun. (laughs) If you give them homes, what happens when the principalities and powers are shaken? If you give them entertainment, it's over when the music dies. But if you give them a psalm and a hymn, and you give them the, the song of songs, If you give them his word, then you have given them something that can last through this great shaking that's coming. Whether it's the great shaking we're we're beginning to experience or whether it's merely the shaking of our generation, doesn't matter to me. We all have to go through it in our generation. And so we're the people right now who are dealing with our calling in our generation. All right. So out of that particular Torah reading, it, it brings up two things I'd like to take a look at. And one of those things is that he says, you've seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Taparu and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. Signs and wonders are wonderful things. How many of you feel good when you see something that you feel like is truly a wonder or a miracle before your eyes? And it gives you hope that he still does wonders and signs and miracles. But how many of you know it's it's not wise to depend upon the signs, the wonders, and the miracles? Because it's basically a matter of testing. I think when we first got into what do we call it? Hebrew roots, Torah observance, walking in the way, whatever we want to call it. Because we had been turned to the Torah so quickly and kind of as a group, that original group that, that started meeting together, it's like, bam, everybody's on board at one time. I think it's it has a much more trickle effect <laughs> now, but it seemed like there was a particular time a couple de- decades ago when there was a huge formation that took place all over the world, not just the United States. And we saw that as a wonder. And we looked around and we said, Messiah must be coming in 2000, right? (laughs) Y2K is the sign. But it wasn't the sign. It was just a big flop. And so if if we're geared toward big signs and wonders, or we're geared toward, it it was, if I don't see signs and wonders, then the spirit must not be working, then we're, we're messing up because the spirit works based on it is written, not I feel. But because it was such a phenomenon, we felt like everybody was just going to jump on board. Like somehow, you know, we would quit going to church on Sunday and those buildings would just magically be turned into Sabbath keeping Torah observant buildings. And that was not, and now we're here (laughs) with each other instead of in their buildings. Not that some people don't see it as a mission field and they're hanging in there, you know, Baruch Hashem, Bezrat Hashem, you're going to need it. But for us, it it was a matter of he pulled us out and then he made us to realize Messiah is not going to come tomorrow. I mean, he might tomorrow, but some time has passed since those tomorrows we thought he would come. And that probably happens in every generation. 
but we feel like it's such a great wonder we have we have come out of those places where we were different denominational backgrounds different ethnic backgrounds different countries this is truly a wonder and a miracle and i think it is because if you see a wonder and a miracle that's based on it is written instead of i feel you're probably onto something that might be an authentic sign or wonder but if it's just something that that gives you a little shot of it validates me. I'm on the right track. He won't let you do that very long. You can't look around and see who else is doing what you're doing. If he has revealed truth to you out of his word, you can't look around and, and feel like, well, if nobody else in my church is, is seeing this, then maybe I'm wrong. Well, look at the, the great moves of the spirit of the past. It's always been a few that he's pulled out, a remnant that he's pulled out, and then he's built something new on top of that. And then he'll pull a remnant out of that and build something on top of that. So we we have to understand that just the sign, the miracle, the wonder, it has to be validated. And then as we go down in that passage, he says, you know, we had the, the king of Heshbon and the king of Bashan. They came out against us to battle when they saw us prepared to enter into the Jordan. If we cross the Jordan, we'll be in the inheritance. And they knew if we crossed into our inheritance, then again, those principalities and powers of the earth were about to be shaken. So did these kings come out of their own accord or were there princes and principalities in the heavenlies that were also saying, oh no, this is this is my principality. I have to promote it. I have to protect it. I have to keep it strong. And so it's really not until the book of Revelation that we realize all those princes and principalities, they have to be shaken out of the way in order for Israel to be able to cross over back into their inheritance. Mm-hmm. And Moses tells them, this is the beginning of the process. Because next week, I think it's you were standing. Last week, it was, you go out, when you come in, now what? Next week, now you're standing. And it's it's all a narrative. If you string together the names of those Torah portions, what you realize is it's telling you the story in a summary. It'll tell you the story of that book in a summary. For instance, if the inheritance, the original inheritance, as we've been studying in the Torah class, was the Garden of Eden, it's not his plan for us to be expelled forever. It's his plan for us to be gathered back and to do the job we were created to do, to guard it and work it, guard it and work it, guard it and work it. And that's what we're preparing for right now, guarding and working. We're not preparing to float on clouds playing harps. Right. I don't I think he's got plenty of people for that position description. He needs people who are prepared to guard and work. There's already enough people in the world who think, you know, getting to heaven is just sitting in a big recliner somewhere, being entertained and fed well. That's not heaven. He is going to call you in to work and to guard what he is, this place that he has prepared for you. And if you're not prepared to do that, then you might need remediation. That's what we do when people don't learn. Right. We remediate them. And so I don't know where remedial Garden of Eden is. I don't know where that is, but we do know that he won't allow us to bring death into life. So we're we're learning the ways of life because that's our original inheritance. It's not just the physical land of Israel. It's what's just above it that you need to have eyes to see. And he says, to this point, you haven't had the eyes to see it, but I'm trying to tell you it's there. If you lift your eyes a little bit, then you'll understand why it's so important to cross this physical Jordan in order to inherit, remember, Yarden, 
Yarad, it means to come down. What's going to happen? The Garden of Eden is going to descend. It's once again going to marry, air quotes, the physical land of Israel. There's going to be a restoration there. And so here he's giving us a glimpse. He's saying, look, as preparation, we conquered these kings on this side of the Jordan. We allotted an inheritance to these two and a half tribes. And so now we have to look at what's going to happen going into the land. Because we know once Israel is settled in the land and the Messianic kingdom, that kingdom will expand all the way from Egypt up to the Euphrates River. It'll be much bigger than we typically see it drawn on maps. And so those are the two places that I'd like to spend a little bit of time today. And I just want to review some scriptures because we've been studying how angels, princes and principalities work and how too often we go around trying to cast them out as demons when actually they're doing what they were appointed to do. And so we learned those characteristics, how they behave and so forth. So we can be a little more educated and not fall into reviling angelic majesties when maybe that angelic majesty was put in our way by the Holy One himself to get us off of that path before we killed ourselves. And I know we always think, you know, it's a demon. It's, it's a devil. He's in my way. The devil's after me today. He, he probably isn't. No, probably the consequences of your actions are after you today. That's more often than not. Does that mean that there isn't a realm of demons and so forth? No, there is. Clearly there is. But often what we see in scripture is people resisting angelic majesties who are there to get you on the path, or they're just doing their appointed job. It's nothing personal, but if you're in their territory, they have to protect it. That's their divinely appointed task. So we wanted to just review right quick Psalm 104.4. It says, he makes the winds, and these are the ruchot like spirits. He makes the winds, his messengers, flaming fire, his ministers. And as we kind of parse that out, if as we take it back into the Hebrew, it's more like he makes the winds, the ruchot, his malachah, his angels. Remember he talked about the angelic majesties. They do what he tells them to do. They perform their tasks like the angels of the four winds. They perform their tasks. And they're not going to divert from it either. If that's their task to do, they don't turn back from it. And then he says, flaming fire, his ministers. And Meshartav, his ministers are his personal servants. So there's ministers of fire out there, just like the two caravim. Remember, they're, they're set at the entrance to the garden with the flaming sword. They're flaming ministers, and they're doing exactly what he set them there to do. The problem is human beings keep thinking they can get in there their own way. And Yeshua said, oh, no, au contraire, mon frere, you may not get in there any old way. You have to come through me. You have to come through the word. And then another set, Job 41, 21, it says his breath sets coals aglow and a flame goes forth from his mouth. So the flame, and, and it's, a, it's one Hebrew word that keeps be, being repeated here, it's lahat. It's flaming, right? So there is a holy fire and he sends a holy fire to do his bidding, to perform his tasks. And what we are to understand too, is that we are also his messengers and therefore he can infuse us with holy fire, just like you see in Acts chapter two. He can put a holy fire in you in order for you to carry out your task. Just like Yeshua told the disciples, stay in Jerusalem until you have received power from on high. They got a fire that enabled them to go out and be killed. That wasn't the end of the sentence you wanted to hear, was it? He gave them the fire so that they were willing to go out and be killed for his name's sake, for the sake of the good news, for the sake of the gospel. 
Well, see, an angel is just that single-minded. It won't stop until it finishes the task. His disciples, once they had this transformation into ministers of fire, they weren't going to turn back from the task at that point. The only one who was going to turn back already had by that point. He wouldn't have made it through that fire. Psalm 83, 14, it says like fire that burns the forest and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. Remember, mountains represent the nations and the forest is the stronghold of the beast. The boar that comes out of the forest was said to be Rome, the beast kingdom of Rome. And so this fire, this ministering fire that goes before him will set fire to the nations and it will also burn up the forest. If there are any strongholds of the beast on earth, Earth, then these ministers of fire will be sent forth to destroy them. You say, are you talking about angelic majesties? Or are you talking about us? Yes. Every time you speak the word, you're setting the forest on fire. Don't tell Smokey. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But when you speak the word of truth into a situation, you are setting the stronghold of the beast on fire and you are setting fire to the mountains, to the nation where you were stationed. So don't be ashamed to speak the word. If the Holy Spirit is within you, if that flaming fire is within you, you're going to set some stuff on fire and you have to say very little. Remember Yeshua and Pilate talking about truth? You only need a word or two sometimes of truth to set the whole thing aflame. Uh, Psalm 97.3, it says, fire goes before him and burns up his enemies all around. The fire travels ahead of him. In fact, it says in Hebrew, telek, it walks. The fire walks before him. Remember his voice walked in the garden? Well, the fire walks before him. You say, are you talking about angelic majesties? Or are you talking about people? Yes, we are the fire that goes before him. We are preparing the world for the footsteps of Messiah to come on the mountains. And in this case, we brought the good news over the mountains with the holy fire. But when Messiah's footsteps set down on the mountains, the good news is going to be that the end of this age is over, that his holy ones are about to be gathered, that the tears are going to be wiped from our eyes. We won't be swimming upstream anymore to keep a Shabbat or the feasts. We won't be swimming upstream anymore when we go into a grocery store and try to find the kosher products. Everything we do right now is upstream. Well, that's good news for the enemy, but it's bad news for us. Well, he's going to flip it because now the good news on the mountains is, you know what, that, that struggle that has been evidence of your faith. I gave you the fire so you could endure it, but now you've endured it. And so now we will rule and reign with him. At any rate, you see this repetition of fire as one of the symbols that goes before us. And I say that because we're going to go back and we're going to look at, at Jacob's wrestling match with the angel all night long, because we're working with this one verse and the Song of Songs, uh, which is basically, who is this coming up from the wilderness? We've looked at who the wilderness is, where the wilderness is, which wilderness are we in, the wilderness of Egypt, the wilderness of the peoples, being scattered out into the wilderness, because in the same way he gathered them from the wilderness, he'll gather us from the wilderness where he scattered us, from these nations. But if we're going to be gathered, it helps if we're going to be challenged with lying signs and wonders. Don't we want the tools to recognize when it's a lie and a deception? Well, Jacob is pretty much the pattern for that, that the sages have left us in, in the commentary that they make upon it. So when you're reading in the book of Revelation, it's a lot like reading this midrash, this commentary on that particular particular battle. And so as Yeshua was walking in the temple at the Feast of Dedication at Hanukkah, he gets challenged. Are you the one? Tell us 
clearly. Quit playing games. Are you the Messiah or not? Are you authentic or are you a lying sign and wonder, a false Christ, a false Messiah? And it sounds like Yeshua is kind of, you know, cagey in his answer. It sounds like he's skirting the issue. He answered them very directly and he answered them in language they would understand. He answered them in the language basically of the Midrash concerning the wrestling match between the angel and Jacob. And then he starts talking about sheep because that's what's in the Midrash. And why does he why does he make a sheep speech at Hanukkah? Well, it's thought, you know, it, Hanukkah is going to fall during the month of Kislev. The temp, the tabernacle in the wilderness, who is this coming up from the wilderness? Right? The completion, because of the, the pillars of smoke, the scented powders of the merchant, and so forth, the, the description of who is coming up out of the wilderness in the Song of Songs, it's describing basically the Mishkan. It's describing the tabernacle. And is the tabernacle just the physical structure, or does it include the 12 tribes and the the, the the Levites and the priests encamped around it and circling it. Because as we drop down in the, the chapter three, it talks about the 60 mighty men encircling it, which has to do with the symbolism of the watches of the Levites, the watches of the Kohanim, and then the watches that were supplied by the 12 tribes. And those watches add up to 60. So it's like they're circling. This is who is coming up from the wilderness. They have the identity as mighty warriors, those who are expert in the sword, the sword of the spirit, the sword of the word. So the the completion of that Mishkan was said to have occurred on Kislev 25, which would it would fall right during the time of Hanukkah. And so they're challenging him at this particular point because it's relevant. They know that King Messiah is going to be the one to lead them up out of the wilderness. Who is this coming up out of the wilderness? Okay, Yeshua of Nazareth, are you the one? Tell us plainly, quit playing. And then he starts talking about sheep. But the, his identity, if he is Messiah, then the completion of the Mishkan could be attributed to him. Because once that those 12 tribes have been brought together, they're dwelling in unity, they are gathered. See, the King Messiah is expected to gather the, the tribes of Israel, all 12 tribes. So are you the one? Are you the one that's going to gather the 12 tribes around the Mishkan? Are you the one who is going to enable the 12 tribes to become that abiding place for the divine presence or not? You have to do that if you're King Messiah. And so this Mishkan, it was built to house the divine presence, not just in the tent itself. He says, I want to dwell among them. If you'll get together and build this, then I'll dwell among you. And you can see why we've been facelifting the congregation, kind of like going back to the temple in disrepair. Well, you're all doing repairs on your own homes, but what about the place where my presence abides? Because mm -hmm. it divides in a much more powerful way when we're together. That's why we have Moedim. And so we put that effort into the place where we gather together to invite his presence. And that presence will become much more powerful in our own homes if we will do that. And so this is all part of the role of King Messiah. And so Messiah, are you the one? Are you the one that's gathering these tribes? Are you the one who's going to bring down the divine presence into our midst? And so it's timely. It's, it's not a bad time to ask him that question. But see, if you don't want to see what he's doing, and if you don't want to hear what he says, then nothing he responds at this point is going to make much sense. I know you've never had a conversation like that with somebody when they did not want to hear what you had to say, so they just couldn't understand what you were saying. It's like somebody told me one time, it's... Uh, it's hard to get somebody to understand something when their paycheck depends upon them not understanding it. So what's the payoff? Do we want the systems that are in place to remain in place? Or are we willing for those systems to be upended and for his place to be put in that place? 
so the, the angel appears to Jacob at night. And this is why I think Yeshua is talking about sheep. He, like I say, he's talking in a language that especially the more religious among them are going to understand because they're going to be familiar with the Midrash, with the stories that are told. They're instructive stories. We're not supposed to believe they're true. Remember what the saying is, if you don't believe it, you're a heretic. If you do believe it, you're a fool, right? Is that the way it goes? Or is that backward? In other words, you take it with a grain of salt because it's a teaching story. It's not scripture. And so when they tell this story about Angel and the Jacob, they're pulling out some points from the text to help us understand how we could be deceived by a sorcerer or an antichrist, or how not to be deceived, perhaps, by an angelic majesty who has been sent been sent specifically to test us because we don't really have much evidence that this angel is really trying to harm Jacob. Was he trying to hurt Jacob or test him? I think it was just a test. And Jacob needed to see something in this test. So here's what the Midrash says. The angel appeared to Jacob that night at the Yavok stream as a shepherd and a robber chief. This one, Jacob, had sheep, and that one, the angel had sheep. The angel said to Jacob, bring across the Yavok stream what is mine. I will bring across what is yours. The angel brought across Jacob's flock in the blink of an eye. Well, the blink of an eye should sound familiar to us. We will all be resurrected. We'll all be transformed in the blink of an eye. Do you think Esau's angel is going to be the one to do it? No, that's a deception. We have to know who is going to resurrect us. So listen, knowing that much about the story, that Esau's angel appeared as a shepherd and a robber, and he's making a claim, at least a hint, that he could gather the sheep in a blink of an eye. He could resurrect them. So John 10, 22 says, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Yeshua was walking in the temple area in the portico of Solomon. The Jews surrounded him and began saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Yeshua answered them, I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my father's name, these testify of me, but you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So did a, an angel shepherd robber have a chance at taking Yeshua's sheep? Did Esau's angel have a chance at resurrecting Jacob's sheep? No. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Yeshua replied to them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, we're not stoning you for a good work, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Yeshua answered them, has it not been written in your Torah, I said you were gods? Elohim. And that's why we had the big lesson on the difference between big E Elohim and small E Elohim. Because basically what Yeshua is about to tell him, if I'm blaspheming, so are you. Because you are all sons of Elohim. If he called them Elohim, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be nullified, are you saying of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world you were blaspheming because I said I am the son of Elohim? He just turned him into a pretzel hermeneutically right there. If I do not do the works of my Father, see how he's emphasizing works? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe in the works. Which is better, to believe in the works of the Father or to believe in a sign and a wonder? 
the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Remember in our Torah portion, he says, you have not been given a heart to understand or eyes to see. And so Yeshua is saying, what? The Father's in me. I'm in the Father. Judge by the works. So that blink of an eye, I don't think that was a casual reference by Yeshua. He, he knows the, the background and that Esau's robber angel, the way that he appeared to Jacob in that particular night, that he's making a claim here. I can gather the sheep in the blink of an eye. Well, that claim's going all over the world right now as a particular doctrine. And I don't think it's been examined properly in the context of scripture, because not just any old sheep is going to be transformed in the blink of an eye. It's the sheep who follow Yeshua's voice. Yes, we will be resurrected to eternal life in the blink of an eye, but Yeshua is that holy flame. He is the one who protects the Father's sheep so that they can re-enter the garden with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to go back into that inheritance that they were promised. And then the Midrash goes on. It tells how Jacob kept going back and forth across the stream all night long. You say, well, how does it look like to wrestle an angel? Well, they get you busy doing something that's pointless in this particular case. (laughs) They'll keep you busy until you come to a realization, until you learn the lesson, until you internalize the thing that you're supposed to learn in this encounter. And so they said, all night long, Jacob keeps going back to get sheep, and he finally realizes, these aren't my sheep. Why am I going back across the stream to get these sheep? These are Esau's sheep. See, my sheep follow my voice. He's been with his sheep from the time they were born. They're not going to follow another. And so these other sheep are just an illusion. And he, he says in the Midrash, they, they put words in his mouth to help you understand they said, Sor-, he says, sorcery, sorcery, you're a sorcerer, for sorcerers are successful at night. <laughs> Remember, night equals exile. So the sorcerers will thrive when Israel is in the darkness, when they are in the exile of night. But then the angel realizes the day is about to break. And he's like, okay, my job here is done. Angels know when the job's over and they're going to cut it short. He realizes at this point, okay, I can't fool Jacob. He has prevailed in this test. He has prevailed in his this trial. And because he has prevailed, his descendants, the 12 tribes of Israel, are also going to be able to prevail over Esau. They're going to be able to prevail over the red beast. They're not going to be fooled by another shepherd who is actually not a shepherd at all. So the angel knows the day is breaking and he reveals himself. He's like, okay, I'm not, I'm not really a, a shepherd robber. I'm an angel and I just did my job here, Jacob. So with that particular background, what Yeshua was telling those who are challenging, whether you're the authentic Messiah, he's taken them right back to that story of the angel and Esau. And he's saying, my sheep will follow me. They will not follow another. But you're you're off track here and what you're looking for, because if I were to do what you want me to do right now, which is rescue you from Esau, then I'm going to leave a whole lot of sheep out here that belong to the father, and I'm not going to let them get snatched out of his hand. So that process took a lot longer, like Hermina was saying. It feels like last minute to us, but these things take in earth years a lot of time in order to bring the plan into place. Right. So remember, we're looking at the verse in Song of Songs 3.6. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the scented powders of the merchant? Each of those things has to do with the Mishkan, with the temple service as well. The columns of smoke, 
course, you're going to have the pillar of smoke. You're going to have the columns of smoke coming out of the sacrificial altar, out of the incense altar. And if you'll remember, that was supernatural fire. It didn't go out. So even as the Levites are carrying that altar around with a cover over it, the thing is still smoking. That fire did not go out. You're like, how did it not burn the cover? It's a different kind of fire. But what is the beast going to do? If we are identified as a people coming up from the wilderness, from the nations where he has scattered us, if we have the appearance of columns of smoke, that we have lived sacrificial lives, if they can see the smoke coming off of us where we have been like the disciples, we go in one way and we go out on fire and say whatever you would like. If it costs me my life, you have my life. So the beast is going to look at this, these ministers of fire in the wilderness. And think of all the fires that the nations, if they're spying on them, would have seen going in the camp at any one time, but especially the supernatural fires. Imagine nighttime. You know, the, the rock that followed them, it had the water, and they say it would draw the boundaries around the tribal encampments. It goes up to the place where the Mishkan is. So at night, not only do you have the pillar of fire that's going to be reflecting off all that water, you're also going to have the fire that never goes out on the, the altar reflecting the fire. So it's going to look like the camp's on fire at night in the wilderness. But this is what the, the beast is going to try to duplicate. The beast always wants to try to duplicate that which is authentic. So he is going to appear, Revelation tells us, to be able to make fire come down out of heaven, to try to mimic the supernatural fire that descended upon the altar and never went out. He's going to mimic holy things in order to possess a holy people. And so the angel had to correct Jacob's thinking. He says, dude, you're not dealing with a human being. I guess I should clue you in. <laughs> I'm an angel. In fact, I'm a ministering angel. I'm a fiery minister, and I'm here to test you. And they say in the Midrash, again, it's illustrative. What are we supposed to learn from this? When Esau's angel encounters us, when the beast encounters us, when the systems of the beast, when we encounter them, they're going to try to impress us with something spectacular. So here's what the Midrash says about the angel. It says he placed his finger on a piece of flint and the flint began seething with fire. Whereupon Jacob said to him, with this fire, you seek to frighten me? I am entirely of fire as it stays. And then he quotes the word. It is written, the house of Jacob will be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for straw, and they will ignite them and devour them. That's what I mean. When you speak the word into a situation, you are setting Esau's house on fire, just like he's the little pig <laughs> out of the forest <laughs> who made his house of straw. Is that the same one as huff and puff and blow your house down? Or is that the different one? Okay. <laughs> We don't have to huff and puff. You just breathe out a little fire of the word, and it's going to ignite Esau's stronghold because we look to Yeshua. Yeshua was that whole burnt offering. He's entirely of holy fire, completely accepted by the Father. He was a whole burnt offering. And so holy fire is to the sorcerer's fire as Moses' rod was to Pharaoh's magician's fiery serpents. Okay, so let's go back to our Torah portion, Deuteronomy 29.3. You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt. So he's taking us back to Egypt. Remember, we've read about the, the wilderness of Egypt, how I contended with you in the wilderness of Egypt. And then I'm going to take you out and I'm going to contend with you again in another wilderness. You saw what the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh and to all his servants, 
and to all his land the great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. All right, wonders. I know we talk a lot about signs, the ot, right? But let's talk about the wonders. What is it that makes a wonder so attractive? If I just pointed my finger and drew a circle and fire sprang up on the dance floor, would that be a wonder? I mean, it'd be pretty attractive. It'd be pretty, wow, that's cool. But does that mean that it's of divine origin? No. I mean, it could. I mean, if he told one of us to do that. I don't know. It doesn't sound like something that would happen, but it could. You don't rule anything out. But the particular word for a wonder is mofet. Mofet. So what makes a wonder so attractive that people are always seeking after a sign and a wonder? Well, let's go back to Exodus 7, 9 through 13. When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, throw it down before Pharaoh, so that it may turn into a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and so they did, just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it turned into a serpent. And that Hebrew word there is tanin. It means a crocodile. It can also mean a dragon, but typically it's going to mean a crocodile. Nachash is more commonly used for a snake. In fact, uh, next to Tamar, there's a, a crocodile farm. You see, and as you turn the corner there, go into the park, it says tanin. So he threw it down, it turned into a tanin. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers. Remember, even if you're wise, if he doesn't give you a heart to understand, you're not going to understand what you're seeing. They too, the soothsayer priests of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and yet they turned into serpents. Tanin, more crocodiles. So we got crocodiles scampering all over the palace at this point. Would that be kind of wonderful to see that? Well, I guess it depends on how much you like crocodiles (laughs) and how high you were off the ground as the crocodiles are scampering around. I mean, that would be pretty cool to see. I mean, I I would like to see it. I wouldn't necessarily want to be down there on the floor with them. It says, but Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. Yet, Aaron's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them. Just as the Lord has said. Well, that's exactly what Moses just told the Israelites. You have not been given a heart to understand what's happening here with the sorcerers. They do not have hearts to understand what they've just seen. So what Pharaoh is asking for when he says work a miracle, that word there is mofet. And mofet is derived from yatha, which means handsome or beautiful. It can refer to the decorations of an idol or idolatry. But on the other hand, it's a contronym. It can refer to the purest beauty of the king and his bride. And you can see that in Psalm 45, 2, Solomon 4, 10, and 7, 6. So if it can be one or the other, well, how do I, if I just look at a wonder, it is going to be something beautiful. It can be something attractive, something eye candy. But how am I going to know whether that's the sorcerer's word or Moses' word? You have to prove it. You have to prove it out. Because here's what's going to happen with this sort of sign or wonder with the mofet. It's going to be designed to be just what you want it to be. Just what you want it to be. What would you find attractive? Well, in terms of an Egyptian, if an Egyptian sees a crocodile, you're looking at one of their gods. It's very attractive to them. So it represents their god and their pharaoh, the crocodile of the Nile. But when Moses is first shown this wonder, it's not called a tanin. It's not called a crocodile. It's called a nechash. It's called a serpent. 
say, well, why would that be attractive to Moses or even to the Israelite elders when he's showing them these wonders to get them ready for what's about to happen? Well, their minds would go right back to the garden and say, hey, wow, this could be really cool because maybe this is demonstrating how we're about to get dominion over the serpent to get that back. It's, it's taking them back to their inheritance. That would be to them something very attractive. So both the Egyptians and the Israelites are both seeing something that would be very beautiful to them in terms of what they want to believe. Uh, even healing the hand as a sign, that would be an, a, an attractive thing because in Egypt, remember the Egyptians were characterized by disease. He says, I won't put any of the diseases upon you that I put upon the Egyptians. Well, healing is a great wonder. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.